Chapter 55 of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 55 Smith to the Rescue. Now, in the whole of Beckley Village, scarcely a soul under eighty years of age, unless it were of some child under eight, tucked up in rosy slumber, failed to discuss within half an hour the miracle about Grace Oglander. That word was first set afoot in the parish by a man of settled habits, and therefore of sure authority, for Thomas Cale had been put upon a horse, when the carrier's leg would not go up, in order to ride for his life to tell Squire Overshoot all that was come to pass. This Cale was a man of large, wondering power, gifted, moreover, with a faith of ghosts, which often detracted from his comfort. He had seen his young mistress in a half-light only, when the household was called to look at her, and now he was ordered to a house where a lady had died not more than a few weeks back, between Beckley Barton and Shotover Grange, there are two places known to be haunted. The necessity for priming Thomas before he started had occurred unluckily to himself alone. Already as he rode out of the yard, a gatepost in a tree shone spectrally. He felt the necessity for priming himself, and, prudent man as he was, he saw no mischief in affording it. Squire Overshoot could not give him less than a guinea for his tidings. Therefore, though pledged to the utmost not to speak, he took the very turn which the prudent Cripps had shunned, and pulling up at the window of the dusty anvil, gave a shout for hot gin and water. The anvil was ringing with hilarity that night, and its dust, if heavy sprinkling could allay it, was subsiding. For Beckley, having played a cricket match with Ilsip, and beaten the Dalesman by ten wickets, as needs must be with five Cripses holding Willow, an equally invincible resolve arose to out-eat the losers at the supper. Ilsip, defeated but not disgraced, was well represented both in flesh and cash, and, as Mr. Cale called for his modest class, a generous feeling awoke in the breasts of several young men to pay for it, for the wickets had been pitched in a meadow of the squires, where Cale had plied scythe and roller. Thomas Cale saw that it would be a most uncandid and illiberal act to open his mouth for a negative only. He firmly restricted good feeling, however, to three good bumpers and a bottomer, pledging himself on compulsion to call on his way back and manage the duplicate. But his heart was so good that before he rode off with a flout at all ghosts and goblins, he took an old crony by the name upon his smock and told him where to go for a miracle. Now who should this be but that old daddy wakeling, that ancient and valued friend of Cripps, and one of the best men in Ellsfield Parish? Daddy was forced to spend much of his time outside his own parish, for the best of reasons, and a melancholy one. There was no public house inside of it. Here he was now, with his fine white locks and patriarchal countenance, propounding a test to our finest qualities, a touchstone of one's lofty confidence or low cynicism, whether the subject should now be pronounced more venerable or more tipsy. But old Daddy Wakeling would be the very last, when getting near the middle of his third gallon, to conceal from his friends any gratifying news, and ere ever Kale's horse's heels turned the corner, Daddy's wise old lips were wagging into the ear of a crony. In less than two minutes Phil Hiss had got the news, a council was held in the long room of the inn, and a march upon the squire's house, and a serenade by everyone who could scrape, blow, 
twang, or halloa was the resolution of a moment. In the thick of the rout, as with good intent they approached the old-fashioned coach doors, which led to the front where they meant to be musical, a short square fellow slipped out of the crowd and without observation went his way. His way was to a little hut of a stable, fastened only with a prong outside, but holding a nice young horse, who had finished his supper, but was not sleepy. He neighed as John Smith came in, for he felt quite inclined for a little exercise, and he knew the value of the saying he had heard, after supper trot a mile. Numbers Cripps was his owner, and in that shameful age of ownership, which soon will be abolished, now that its prime key is gone, the key of holy wedlock, and the butcher had offered Mr. Smith a ride whenever he should happen to want one. The night was well up in the sky, and a track of summer daylight star-swept, the dim remembrance of a brighter hour that hangs round a tree like a halo, was gone, and only little twinkles shone through bays of leafage against the tidal power of the moon, and the long, immeasurable stretch of silence spread faint avenues of fear. Mr. John Smith was a very brave man. Imagination never stirred the corpulence of his comfort. What he either saw or sifted out by his own process, that he believed, and very little else. And so he rode through light and shade and the grain of the air which is neither, while the forest grew deeper with phantasm and the depth of night made way for him. Suddenly even he was startled, in a dark, narrow place where he kept the track and stuck his heels under his horse's belly for fear of being taken sideways. Something dashed by him with a pant and roar and fire flying out of it. Mr. Smith blessed his stars that he was not rolled over, as he very well might have been, for that which flew by him like a streak of meteor was a strong horse frantic. Smith turned round in his saddle and stared, but the runaway sped the faster, as if he were rushing away from the forest with a pack of wolves behind him. The stirrups of his empty saddle struck fire, clashing under him, and his swift flight scarcely left a sound of breath or hoof to follow him. "'The devil is after him,' said John Smith. I never saw a horse in such a state of mind. I may as well mark the spot where he came out. He is left, as sure as I sit here, a tale to be told in the background. Without dismounting, he broke off a branch of young white poplar and cast it so that by daylight he could find it, and then with a very uneasy mind he strode on to trace the rest of it. He was not by any means in Luke Sharp's pay, as one or two persons had suspected, Neither was he even of his privy council, and yet he was bound hand and foot to him, partly by fealty of a conquered mind, and partly by sense of his brother, Joe's complicity to subservience. John Smith, in his own way, was an honorable man, and money was no bribe to him. With quickened alarm he rode on at all speed towards the cottage of the swineherd. Never in any way had he dealt with the sylvan schemes of Mr. Sharp, or even from a distance watched them. It was long ere he had any clear suspicions, for his tall brother kept miles away from him, and seeking the remains of grace under the snowdrift, he wrought out his duty with blind honesty. John Smith's nerves were of iron, and even the riderless horse had not scattered them, but though he rode on bravely still, a cloud of gloom fell over him. It would make a sad difference to his life if anything had happened to Mr. Sharp, for Smith had invested a little money under the lawyer's guidance, 
and knowing Luke sharp as he did, he feared that evil had befallen him. Hence, with dark misgiving and a set resolve to face it, he lashed his horse on at a perilous rate through the waddled ways of moonlight. The glance and glimpse of light and shade flew past him like a cataract, till suddenly even he was scared by the sound of his name in a sad, clear voice. He pulled up his horse and laid his hand on the butt of a pistol beneath his cape, till a woman came forth into the light and said, I was sure you would come, but too late. It is too late. Cinnamenta, show me, he answered very softly, knowing by her gesture that the mischief was at hand. As soon as he was off his horse and had made him fast by the bridle, she led him round some shadowy corners into a little dingle. This had no great trees to crowd it, and though it lay below a level of the wood around, the moon was high enough now to throw a broad gangway of light along it. The sides were fringed or jagged with darkness, cumbrous tree or mantled ivy jutting forth black elbows, but in the middle lay and spread fair sward of dewy emblements, swept with brightness and garnished for a whitsome dance of fairies. But now, instead of skip and music, sigh and sob and wailing noises of the human heart were heard. A fine young form of the Oxford build lay heavily girt with molehills, enfolded vainly in a velvet cloak, and vainly on every side adjured to open its eyes and come back again. Kit was not at all the fellow thus to be addressed in vain, if he only could have heard the living voices challenge him. His love of sport had been love of pluck, as it generally is with Englishmen, and all his dogs of different sizes must have taught him something. His mother now was pulling at him, in a storm of fear and hope. She felt that he could not be dead, because it would be so outrageous, and yet her feeble heart was fearful that such things had been before. Happily for herself she knew not what had happened to him, but took it for an accident of the woods, for the gypsy woman, who alone had seen it, had been too kind to tell the truth. Oh, Kit, Kit, now only look, the poor fond mother was going on. Only lift one eyelid, darling, only move one little hand. His hands were a very considerable size. Or do anything, anything you like, dear, just to show that you are coming back, back to your own mother. Kit, Kit, oh, my Kit, my own and ever only Kit. Or Christopher, if you like it better, darling. Here I have been for whole hours and hours, and not one word will you say to me. If ever I laughed at you, Kit, in my life, you must have felt how proud I was. There is not anything in all the world or anybody to come near you, Kit. Only come, only be near me, instead of breaking all my heart like this. Worn out with misery, she fell back, and Cinnamenta, with a short, quick sigh, knelt down on the turf and supported her. Four times I have had to bear it, and every time worse than the time before, she said in her soft, clear tone to herself but only to remind herself of the tenderness she was sure to show. And this was her only one, and grown up. Her face, still beautiful and lovely with the sad love in her eyes, the memory of the time when still there was somebody to live for, shone in the gentle light, now poured abundantly on all of them, all of who had lived and loved and suffered and now made shadows and moonshine, 
Not one had been down to the holy depths of sorrow as this woman had. Catching up now, cried John Smith, who never knew how his ideas were timed. Catching up by the heels, one of ye, while I taken him by the head. This here basely hole being out to fetch the ghost of his life out. He hath got life in him. Don't tell me. His ears be like a shell, and no dead man's is. Rap on the knob, Lord bless my heart. I'd sooner have fifty than one on the basket. What all on you afeard to heckle him? Oh, no, sir. Oh, no, sir, cried poor Mrs. Sharp as Tickus and another man fell away. I am not very strong, but I can help my child. Ma'am, you are a lady, said John Smith, that being his very highest crown of praise. But as for you, a d set of cowards, go to the devil, all of you. Now, ma'am, I will not trouble you except to follow after us. Sinny will clear the way in front. It cometh more natural to her. And you, ma'am, shall follow me as you please. And sorry I am not to help you. A little shaking will do him a world of good. He was taking up Kit with a well-adjusted balance while he spoke to her, and he wasted his breath in nothing except in telling her to follow him, as the hind comes after the poor slain fawn, or the cow runs after the nettled cart where the white face of her calf weeps out. Even so Mrs. Sharp, of her dress, thought nothing, though cut up like a carrot in the latest London style and trimmed with almost every flower nature ever saw, Anyhow, after Kit she went, and knew not light from darkness. Mr. Smith sturdily managed to get on. He was thickly built and had well-set reins, and though poor Kit was no featherweight, his bearer did not flag with him. Then, setting the body of the lad on a mound, where the moon shone clearly upon his face, and the night air fanned him quietly, John Smith very calmly pulled out a bright weapon, and flourished it, and felt the edge. Oh, no, sir! Oh, pray, sir! cried Mrs. Sharp, falling on her knees and, and clasping her poor boy. Sinny, just lead her behind that bush. Tis either death or blood with him. Oh, no, I could never bear to be out of sight. If it really must be done, I will not shriek. I will not even sigh. Only let me stay by his side. John Smith signed to his sister-in-law, who took the mother's trembling hands and turned her away for a moment. Now, fetch cold water. That vein must not be allowed to bleed too long, ma'am. Tis a ticklish one to manage for a surgeon, even, and at present it is sulky. But it only wants a little air and just the least little touch again. If you could just manage to go and say your prayers, ma'am, we could get on a long sight better. Oh, I never thought of that. How sinful of me. Oh, kind good man, I implore of you. Not of me, ma'am. Pray to God in heaven, unless you wish to see me run away. And if I do, he slips right off the hooks. She turned away with her weak hands clasped. But whether she prayed or not, never could she tell. But one thing she bore in mind as long as soul abode with it, and that was the leap of her heart when Smith shouted in a good, loud voice, All right! End of chapter 55